doing Luke chapter 8 is our chapter and our particular verses are in verses 26 to 39. So if you want to turn there with us, Luke chapter 8 verses 26 to 39 is our text. Luke 8, 26 to 39. Starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he will break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country and of the garrisons asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we pray you will be with us, be with me. We thank you that we've come again to be encouraged. It's amazing, Lord, that you have drawn people to yourself here today, including me. God, we are sheep. And you are the great shepherd. Would you speak to us, God? And we know that those who belong to you know your voice. And we pray for those who have not heard your voice or know it. God, that you will open their ears to hear what your spirit has to say through your word. We earnestly desire for salvation to take place today, Lord. Be glorified. Be glorified today in the preaching of your word and the listening of your word that you will be known, that you will be worshipped. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I like to start off with questions. Uh, I think they just, uh, it's a good way to get us to think. It's a real simple one, and I might have asked it three or four times in the past year. It's a very simple question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? There's a Bible dictionary that says this about Christ. Quote, Jesus Christ is described as the son of David, son of man, and son of God. 
His sonship speaks of his divinity and humanity and is closely associated with his role as promised Messiah, suffering servant, suffering savior, risen Lord, and coming judge and king. It also speaks of his intimate, obedient, and unique relationship with his father and of his mission to enable people to become children of God through faith in him, end quote. So Jesus is son of David, son of man, son of God. He is divine. He is God. Amen? Amen. He is fully human. He is the Messiah, the suffering Savior spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He is the risen Lord. He is the coming judge and king. Who is Jesus and have we truly believed in who he is? Now, Jesus is known to challenge conventional ways of thinking when it comes to life. Jesus, uh, as Malcolm Muggridge says, Jesus is the prophet of losers, not the victor's camp. The one who proclaims that the first will be last, that the weak are strong and the fools are wise. So if you see me as a fool, praise the Lord. Some of y'all probably already know that, right? But Malcolm Mugridge was right that Jesus is king, he's Lord, and he's God. But sometimes we think of the audience or the people, his subjects, as something else. Refusal to believe Jesus for who he is happens because Jesus needs to fit into a paradigm and thought of those with the fixed worldview. When I ask who Jesus is to us, our answer should not only be a correct theological answer, but it begs the question of practice. What have we done with who Jesus is? That's an ouch. You can say amen or you can say ouch. For me, that was an ouch. What do the people in our text do with who Jesus is? This is seen, and we can learn, actually, from what we observed in the text here today. Furthermore, we can learn about what to do with who Jesus is today. Our text will show us what to do when we run into the risen Christ and what not to do. So our outline for today, point number one, the Son of God revealed, verses 26 to 29. The Son of God revealed, verses 26 to 29. Second point, the Son of God feared. Verses 30 to 37. The Son of God feared. Verses 30 to 37. And point number three. The Son of God proclaimed. The Son of God proclaimed. Verses 38 through 39. So point number one. The Son of God revealed in verses 26 through 29. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now it's interesting because it's unclear. From the gospel accounts precisely where this actually took place being that there are variant readings of this text, of the location, right? And so three possible locations is Gergesa, a city on the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. Gerasa, uh, I think it's called. You got Gergesa and Gerasa, bear with me. Located at modern day southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And third, Gadara, which is also southeast of Galilee as well. So because of variant readings, you had the earliest manuscripts and then you had the majority text, you do have uh, different names for this location, but most likely it was southeast of Galilee and Gadara. Opposite of Galilee, which would be northwest of the sea, 
They travel southeast into the Sea of Galilee about 13 miles or so. This happens after the storm in the previous verses. We must remember that Luke's account is written in themes, and he's not so concerned with chronological order. So we figured out last week that the theme here is talking about the power of Christ, the messianic power of Jesus, the fact that he's not just this man who came into the scene and is doing good things. This man has power. This man has authority. Okay, and so the themes, according to Luke 1, 1 through 4, was important for Theophilus to understand so that he could have certainty of the things that he had been taught. So this next section concerns Jesus and his display of power revealing who he is. If you remember last week's message, Jesus calming the storm revealed Jesus to be the God who calms storms. This being told to the disciples and to us from Holy Scripture today. The disciples were afraid. And they marveled when Jesus calmed the storm. And they said in Luke 8, 25, who then is this? That he commands even waves, even the winds and water, and they obey him. Who is this man? Jesus displayed power over creation, over the natural. And now he's about to reveal something else. That he has power over the spiritual. Verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out land on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in the house but among the tombs. So Jesus arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee, about southeast. Uh, and there he met a man from the city who had not just one demon, but demons. At this point, Jesus had already dealt with demon-possessed people. Luke 4, if you remember, he dealt with the man who had an unclean spirit. And Luke 4 also, demons came out of many. So this is not new. And they cried out that Jesus uh, was the son of God. He actually told, told them to hush. Like, be quiet. It's not time yet. But in our text, we'll notice, and I'm not going to make a big deal of this, but he doesn't do that later. And my guess is, is because that's not around the same region where Jerusalem is. So he's okay with people saying he's the son of God here. But if you would have said it around Jerusalem, it probably would have expedited his time of being crucified. That's my guess. You roll with that. Now, before traveling through the sea, Jesus had done this already. We see this. And it was expected. But there's a difference. There's a difference here. The man who has demons was naked. He wore no clothes, showing how he was possessed so much that he couldn't even do what was basic. In our missus trip, we saw a grown man with no clothes. Very bizarre. He had nothing. He looked roughed up, scuffed up, everything. He looked like he had nothing. And here's a grown man out in the street walking with no clothes. I don't know about y'all, but I was like, that happened in Lancaster. You know what I'm saying? It would be like, yo, we need to do something, right? Uh, it would be bizarre to us. Um, it would be the same here in our text. It's bizarre that someone, especially in a religious context, where there's people who realize that nakedness is shameful. We know that today. For that to happen then, it means that something is really wrong here. He also did not live in a house, which was an essential thing to do, but he lived among the tombs. We should remember that demons are falling angels, right, who fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. 
They are employed by Satan with limited power and limited jurisdiction. It's important for us to remember Colossians 2.15 because of some of the backgrounds we probably came out of, where Satan is made of a big deal. And he is. He's an adversary, but he's a defeated foe. Right. Amen? Amen? Satan just doesn't go around doing whatever he wants to do. He's under limited jurisdiction. And he got nothing on you if you belong in his kingdom. Nah, bro, I'm good. You can say that. He's defeated. Now, for people who aren't saved, he's lowercase God. He's the God of this world. And he's at work. He's blinding their minds. If you are not son or daughter of the Most High God, you're a son and daughter of Satan. And I'm just saying that because that's what Jesus called other people. So, you know, when we think of people that are lost, they're not just, you know, blind and the, the Bible describes that. Their allegiance is satanic. Their allegiance is to a fallen creature. Okay, so let's get that right. They're not just lost. Their allegiance is off. And that's why we have to bring the gospel to bring about to expose the sin that's creating this allegiance and saying you're on the wrong side of the team. You need to come on the other side and realize that true freedom is in Christ. You're bound in your sin. You're bound to this fallen creature who's a loser. If daddy's a loser and you're in allegiance with him, then it just follows. You're lost and you're defeated and you have no victory. So, Colossians 2.15 makes it very clear. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed rulers and authorities, including those in our text here today, those demons that were in this man. I see the scriptures telling us that when one worships another God, that it is actually a demon. Psalm 106.37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. There isn't other gods out there, you know, like, you know, that were always there, eternal. Like, you only have one true living God. And then you have little demons that want to act like they're gods. Right? And so the, the God of Islam, the head of that religion is Satan himself. Probably not popular to say today, but it's true. Any other religious system outside of orthodoxy, outside of the Christian faith, is ran by a demon. There isn't other gods, and then, you know, you kind of have God here, like Zeus has other gods who are his homies, and they're over there chopping it up or whatever. No, that's not it. That ain't it. They have to ask the living God permission to do what they do. Read the book of Job as an example. There's only one true living God. And any other false religious system at the head of it is a demon. These fallen angels under Satan's dominion have taken over this man so much that they possessed him not to put on clothing and not to live under a house. So in verse 28, they also took over his speech and his mind and his strength. Let's read verse uh, 28 together. Uh, I'll read it and then you, you follow. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, this is coming from the man, what have you do, 
Uh, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Do not torment me. So who was Jesus to the demons here? He was the man who caused them to cry out and fall before him. <laughs> At his very presence, they were like, we know our role. We know our role. The presence of Jesus caused them to do something indicative of who he was. He was the one who calmed the storm and caused the disciples to say, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. That's who this is. The demons saw what the disciples could not see. Fallen angels are falling and crying out because Jesus is who he said he was the whole time. So what exactly are they seeing in our text? They see Jesus, son of the most high God, which they confess with a loud voice. The demons feared him, which is why they asked him, what have you to do with me? I beg you, do not torment me. They begged Jesus not to torment them, revealing his authority. What did it mean for Jesus to be called son of the most high God? Well, it points out two things. Number one, he's the son. The son inherits the king's inheritance, right? So when the king is done ruling or if he dies, it's passed on to the son. Everything that belongs to the father belongs to the son. Number two, most high God speaks to his authority, which would be passed on to him because he is the son of the most high. That is why the demons reacted this way. Since demons were actually the false gods that were worshipped, they acknowledged Jesus as the son of the most high God as a title that was over them. They're acknowledging that this man before us is greater than us. The most high or the highest God is a term also used by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 31 to 32. So it's not unique actually to addressing the living God. The Canaanites also, pagan religions also use this term to describe their gods as well. However, when used by the angel, used by demons, it recognizes that there is only one worthy to be called most high. And that all other gods are no gods at all. Galatians 4.8 says, most high means the highest, the supreme one, the above one. I like that one. The above one. You're greater than us. We can't compare to you. You only are deserving of being called most high. Now, angels got rank. Demons have rank. But God has the highest. And in fact, he's incomparably the highest. So this war that people seem to paint, right, in some movies where it's... Uh, there's some movies out there that make it seem like God is over here and Satan's over here and they're at war. That's unbiblical and it's wrong. The, probably the better picture is that God, you know, has a leash and Satan's on that leash. That's a better picture. Okay, do, do what you need to do because it's going to fit in my overall plan. And then when you're done, you need to come back and you need to sit here and be quiet. Don't let the movies fool you. He's under authority. He's on a leash and his time is limited. And he knows it. 
He knows his place. He's not going to go do something outside of the sovereignty of God. So don't get that twisted. If you're watching those movies, you need to cut it out. But it, this really does beg the question, right, that this uh, accurate acknowledgement of where the demons acknowledge Jesus as the son of the most high God, that this reaction was because they believed and saw Jesus for who he was. So if demons reacted this way to the reality of who Jesus is, why does it seem that when Jesus is talked about, we who are redeemed can at times talk about Christ so casually? With no reaction to who he is. When have outward expressions matched your theological convictions? Demons were right to respond this way. This man even commands the winds and water to obey him. This man has power over nature and all creation. This man who came from God is going back to God because he existed prior. If demons who are fallen angels unable to please God reacted this way, how much more us who were given grace? I think we've been too casual about the Lord. We're like, yo, think very deeply about who we are worshiping. We will be a little bit more careful about our prayers. We will be a little bit more careful about our Bible reading time. We will be a little careful about things we're saying at work that we shouldn't be saying. It would pick us up and be like, dang, like, he, he's for real. I had those moments where it, it, it actually spooked me a little bit. That God is real. He exists. He sits in the heavens. He's the God man right now interceding for us. He's alive today. So maybe because he's real and awesome and amazing and just holy and he could at a whim just get rid of all the universe at just a thought. Maybe when I come to him to the throne of grace, I need to come boldly because of Christ, but carefully because of his holiness. Maybe we've talked about God too casually. At the thought of worshiping God, we should surrender and exalt him. Amid temptation, we should run because nothing should be more displeasing to us than to sin against God. Our outward expression should match our theological convictions. At the thought of Christ, our hearts should be reverent. So the demons were right here in our text. Jesus is the son of of the Most High, they were right to cry out because he is God. And falling before him is an appropriate response. They were right to be afraid. Verse 29 of our text, For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it has seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. When we see three conjunctions in verse 29, which all are pointing back to the demons asking Jesus not to torment them. So the man was seized by demons, meaning he was snatched up, carried off by them. And furthermore, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. He would break the bonds that he was in and he was driven into the desert by these demons. He lost all control of his faculties because of being under the control of fallen angels. 
as powerful as they were in taking over this man, when Jesus was revealed, they rightly feared him. Which is our second point. The Son of God feared in verses 30 to 37. Let's read it. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Verse 31, and he begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now Jesus begins to expose who these demons are. If some here think this is a prescription for encountering spiritual or the demonic, uh, you want to be careful. It's not like y'all can walk around and someone's demon possessed and be like, yo, what's your name? Uh, let me holler at you right now. Like, let's, let's chop it up real quick. No, that's, this is not a prescription for that. I know people that have done <laughs> things like that. What we're seeing here is a display of authority and power. Right? Some here may scoff at the idea of the spiritual. You may not believe that there is a spiritual realm at all. Maybe you're looking at all this and saying, yo, these guys are talking this crazy stuff, demons, angels, and we really believe this, y'all. You came to the wrong place. <laughs> if you have a different worldview, because I'll tell you, I've been around the block long enough in my faith to know that this stuff is real. Or maybe as a Christian even, the reality of spiritual warfare or the demonic seems awkward to you. I know Christians, and when I begin to talk about the demonic and spiritual warfare, I begin to be labeled with the charismatic movement. Or there's stereotypes that go to that. It should not be awkward to us to talk about the demonic realm. It should be normal. It's normal in the Bible. The early church, when he talked about demons and, and angels and all that, that was a normal thing in their language. But somehow in America becomes an awkward thing, especially in reformed circles. And I'm reformed. I'm a seven-point Calvinist all the way hardcore. <laughs> but my camp, I blame them because it seems as if we can't talk about biblical things like the demonic realm. It's real. And it happens. So we can't err on both sides. You can't be too skeptical and you can't be so unbiblical. You have to Understand that the Bible's normative language about these things is there. C.S. Lewis says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail as materialists and magician with the same delight. We can't make those mistakes. We have to be biblical. Jesus can ask demons questions because he is whom they said he was. Furthermore, he has the authority because he is the son of the most high God. Jesus was dealing with a legion of demons. I found that the Roman military legions had 5,400 soldiers in them. Actually, the Greek alludes to a Roman legion. Many demons were involved here. And even with how many were involved, they were still afraid. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They begged him and were afraid. They knew that just at his command, they would have to obey 
even if told to depart into the abyss. So they begged him not to order them to go to the abyss. And then Jesus, check it out, gave them permission in verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to, uh, to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. I like that. What was it about the abyss that caused them to beg? They were so afraid of it. The Septuagint translation of abyss, the deep, could be also called primeval ocean. It had a literal interpretation of the abyss. According to ancient Jewish belief, this vast body of water below the earth gave springs, brooks, and rivers their waters, which spoke of the physical and natural use of the word. And Job 41, 31 speaks of it, the abyss, being the place where the Leviathan is. And in our passage, the abyss is most likely where demons are imprisoned. It is there where Satan will be bound a thousand years. And in 2 Peter, demons are chained and kept until the judgment. I wouldn't want to go to jail either. <laughs> it seems that they did not want to go where they would be imprisoned. Instead, they begged him to be cast into pigs, into that which is unclean which will be better for them than to be cast into uh, the abyss. So Jesus permitted them. And then in verse 33, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Powerful. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And now we can say, saints, who then is this? That he commands a legion of demons to leave and be cast out. What comfort can we draw from the truth that Jesus is the son of the most high? And what assurance is there in Jesus having dominion over the demonic? Number one, it should comfort us that when there is opposition, we can trust that God is in control. Amen? Amen. We can trust that God is in control. If you feel spiritual warfare happening, whether it be your marriage, whether it be your single life, whether it be your job, whether it be your whatever it is, we can have comfort in that opposition because God is, in fact, in control of it. It should give us comfort that he controls the spiritual realm, that nothing could be done apart from his sovereign plan. That is comforting and helpful. Number two. It should comfort us, not fear, when it comes to spiritual warfare. What do you have to be afraid of? When it happens, the Bible says, don't think of it being strange. It's not strange when you're attacked spiritually. It's not strange for you to feel the sense of discouragement and depression or anxiety. Thank God I've been delivered from depression. Amen? I praise the Lord for that. I struggle with anxiety, fear of the future, fear of what could happen tomorrow. Am I going to be here? There could be comfort in that because God is in control. Number three, it should give us comfort in who he is. It should give us comfort in who he is. Not only is God in control, but he's inviting you into a, a relationship where he's going to shower you with grace to thrive in the midst of things that look like out of control. He can do that as well. 
So the demonic is right to fear when the son of the most high appears. The demons came out and entered the pigs and the entire herd plunged down to the steep hillside into the lake and he drowned at his command. So the man was delivered from a legion of demons, which displays the power and authority of Jesus Christ. No rogue demon can do whatever they want, which is still true today. Jesus still has authority today, which should be an encouragement. But what would be the response here in our text? Let's read verse 34. You would think that people would be like, yo, that's amazing. That was a wow. Let's read verse 34 and 35. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. The countryside here in our text will be closer to the desert than the city, and the herdsmen will tell of what happened here in the city, and in the country. So this deliverance would draw a crowd. What would they see, and what would be their response? Well, they came to Jesus, found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at his feet, clothed, and in his right mind. Pause real quick. Wouldn't that, shouldn't that cause some applause? You know this dude who for a long time was so possessed and you see him in his right mind. Finally, he got some clothes on, praise God. I would have been like, yo, um, praise the Lord, bro. Because I was struggling. Like, I was always like, you know what I mean, trying to help you out. But you had no clothes on, you know what I mean? I love you, but come on, man, you know? He got his clothes on, his right mind on. You would think that that would cause a sense of applause. But it didn't. It says in our text, they were afraid. This spooked them. They found the man who was delivered sitting at the feet of the one who flexed his power. This man was clothed. This man was on his right mind now. What would cause them to be afraid? Why would this make them afraid? Well, this is a pattern in the Bible. Remember when the angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke 1. Zachariah's response was fear. Mary, when the angel appealed to her, right? Mary's response was fear. Remember Simon Peter responded this way in Luke 5 when Jesus did the miracle of catching fish. Who is this man that's doing these things? Right before our passage, after Jesus calmed and hushed the storms, Luke 8, 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? There was fear. They dreaded him. They were frightened because this man had authority over legions of demons, and a man was delivered fully, who sat at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. There was awe and dread because of this. And in verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then in verse 37, then all the people in the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him not to stay and keep delivering people. They asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. 
Saints, have we genuinely believed in the reality of the power of God? Do we have a healthy fear of God? This isn't all wrong. This is appropriate, an appropriate response to something amazing that happened. If Jesus nowadays walked in, in, in the midst of us and did what he did today, I'd be like, yo, like this is crazy. Who is this man? This question has come up in our small groups about the fear of God. How many have been going to small groups? That's conviction right there. You should be convicted if you haven't gone. Um, it came from Philippians 2, 12 to 13, where it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if God loves us, why should we be afraid of God? Our sister Rachel uh, Welsh gave a good example. She talked about uh, her kids needing to know how dangerous the roads are, the street, and how she would teach them or will teach them to always look both ways before they cross the road, right? Now, you're not teaching them to, like, be panicky in the street. You're teaching them to be safe, right? Look both sides. And make sure no cars are coming, because if not, you'll get run over. So she talked about wanting her kids to do this. This is a good example. There should be an acknowledgement that God is not to be played with. Why have we become so casual about the things of God? We should take our relationship with God very, very seriously. We should be careful with his name. We should be careful with how we worship him. Some of y'all probably like, I never heard that song. Why aren't we singing Jesus culture? Why aren't we singing Hillsong? Well, Jesus culture is an apostate church. Hillsong is an apostate church. I'm sorry. If that's offensive, you need to read up and, and find out what's going on in these movements. These movements are void of, of I'm going to say it, the void of the word of God. Yeah. We need to be careful, saints, about the things of God. We should know that we should not fear God when it comes to condemnation, however. There's an unhealthy fear of God where if God is like this parent that when he, re you know, kind of the example I give is if, if you have a child and you lift your hand to them and they do this, there's something wrong. That's not the Lord. When he extends his hand to you, you should be wanting to extend your hand back to him. Because condemnation does not apply to us anymore. We have been set free. We are no longer afraid of God condemning us. We should have a sense of fear that he will discipline us. That's different. Because a good father will discipline his children. But 1 John 4, 15 through 19 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's us. By this, love, uh, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is 
so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, condemnation, wrath. And whoever fears has now been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. God in Christ has given us a love and a fear of the Father that has nothing to do with condemnation. God is not a, 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 a father who's ready to smack you every time you make a mistake. Some of us have lived in homes like that, right? We've been abused that way. God is not like that. The fear they experienced was a real fear that was appropriate. Jesus revealed himself as over the demonic. He revealed himself as a healer, but they were seized with great fear because they did not experience what the man delivered, saw, and experienced. All the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, but the man who was delivered not only wanted to be with Jesus, but he would proclaim him in the city. When Jesus did what he did, the people did two things, saints. They asked Jesus to depart from them. Number two, the man who was delivered wanted to follow Jesus and proclaimed him. There's a last point in closing. The Son of God proclaimed in verses 38 to 39. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away. This is not the same response that everyone else had in our text. While everyone asked Jesus to leave, the man who was delivered asked Jesus to go with him. By being delivered, the man could see what others could not see. They were right to be afraid of Jesus because he displayed power and authority over what they could not control. However, that is a, that, it's actually a problem because fear of his power does not save. No one was ever scared into the kingdom of God. That's why when you keep emphasizing hell and condemnation without the gospel, without hope, you're being unbiblical. I can't stand those street preachers that says God hates so-and-so, God hates so-and-so, have fire in their pictures. That's an incomplete message. That's true, but that's not the only thing. You should be more afraid of God than you are of hell. You're being delivered from a holy God so that you could be delivered to a holy God. Hell is not the worst thing. The worst thing is not to be with God. And he's made a way. He sent his only son into the world so that you who may believe will be saved. He loves his people and did everything he could in his sovereign plan to save. What brought the man to faith was seeing Jesus as a deliverer. He was saved by the power of Christ. Demons rightly feared Jesus and all the people that witnessed and heard of what he did. Nevertheless, the only one willing to follow Jesus was the one who was delivered. Deliverance preceded proclamation. Deliverance preceded proclamation. And this is what we are to do today. Have you been delivered? Have you been saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost? Is that you? You have a message. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Your deliverance precedes your message. Have you been delivered? Yes. Then speak of your deliverance. Share what God has done. That's what Jesus wanted this man to do. 
He said in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Man, if this is not a good example for us in our city, I don't know what is. Have you proclaimed what God had done for you in Christ in our city? This man was not only delivered from a legion of demons, but more importantly, from the wrath of God. His sins were forgiven. And this deliverance of his former state allowed him to proclaim what God had done to the city. That's the same for us today. If you have been delivered, saint, then you have a message to share today. Proclaim it. Well, those, you know, I'm not that theologically savvy. I still got to go to systematic theology to get this thing together. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She saw Jesus for who he was. He did something that only God can do. What did she do? She went back to her city and declared what she had seen. Then he was brought there. They all were like, yo, this is the son of God. This is the one of whom the scriptures were talking about. Deliverance always precedes proclamation. If you've been truly delivered, you have a message. You have a message, share it. Share what God has done for you. So as we uh, close today, saying, I hope today you were encouraged. And my calling out of Hillsong and Jesus culture is not to say that God is not working in those circles. I want to make that very clear. God works in spite of. And we pray for these movements, right? I don't want to objectify them. I'm not saying there aren't Christians in these environments. What I'm saying is we need to be better discerners of the truth. Our message that we are proclaiming can't be compromised by a false gospel. Because God is not to be played with. A healthy fear of God demands us to look at the things of God very carefully. How do we do church? Do we do it carefully enough where God is being glorified? Or is it kind of loose? We just come here and do whatever. No, we come here very carefully. Do we just preach whatever? No, we're careful, man. We, me and Wayne work really hard to exposit God's word carefully. We spend hours in the text. We spend time on our knees praying for you. This morning, I was just in my office praying for you. I was praying for God to open up ears and eyes today to comfort those that are hurting, but doing it very carefully, not casually. So this fear that we experience here today, some of it is healthy. That God is so awesome and so amazing and so big and so mighty. We need to be careful. He is a king who sits on the throne. You don't just walk into the king's throne and be like, yo, what's up, king? And, you know, what's up, dog? Like, you know, things are chilling. No. You need to be careful. <laughs> careful with the king is what I'm saying. Be careful with the king. Let us love him as he loves us. Father, we thank you. Would you help us? Help us today to learn from the text that there is to be a healthy fear of who you are, but also, Lord God, that we have a message to share because you have delivered us.